Processing a mutation, how it may not be as bad as that sounds, the need, perhaps, for a European Security Council, and it gives you wings, how Finland's ski jumpers are padding their way to triumph. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition. I'm Andrew Muller here in Studio 2 at Midori House in London, joined today by Augustin Machalari. Uh, Augustin, welcome to the show. How are your doomsday preparations going? Yeah, it's all going pretty well, actually. Thanks, Andrew. I, um, I managed to find a disused patch of wasteland where I've buried an assortment of firearms that I've been stockpiling over the last 18 months and quite a lot of tinned food as well. So all things considered, I'm feeling pretty good about the next sort of uh, year or two. I mean, I, I would ask you to tell me and our listeners which part of the UK you're broadcasting from, but of course you're not going to want to give up your location, are you? Unfortunately not. No, I'm going to have to keep that to myself. I will be uh, writing a treasure map that I'll put online for anyone who's uh, who's interested in, in finding it. Could also just be a way of luring the unsuspecting into an ambush. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that lends the challenge an an added frisson for which I'm sure our listeners uh, will be grateful as they struggle to find ways to amuse themselves over this increasingly bleak midwinter. But let's start today, uh, inevitably perhaps, with the latest on COVID-19. UK-based listeners reflecting on the wreckage of their Christmas plans can at least console themselves that they they are not a Europe-based long-haul truck driver hoping to make it back home from Britain by Friday. Unless you are a listener who is one of those hauliers, in which case condolences. As more than 50 countries react to the emergence of a new COVID-19 variant by banning arrivals from the UK, thousands of lorries are parked in Kent. As for incoming traffic, the British Retail Consortium fears some disruption of food supplies as early as tomorrow. Well, earlier we heard from Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith, and from the political journalist and author, Terry Stiasny. Since the pandemic emerged back in January, it's worth noting that there have been many thousands of different variants of this virus that have been picked up around the world because for the first time in history we've actually been tracking the emergence of a pandemic in real time and sequencing reading the genetic code of those variants as it progresses across the across the world and, and across different countries and what singles the uk out is that we have a, this genomics consortium uh, cog uk whose job it is to do precisely this at fine resolution across the united kingdom and they've sequenced more than 140,000 different strains of the virus um, different genomes from people who've been infected with it since the outbreaks began at the beginning of the year. And so we've documented a number of different changes and and it's not unusual for viruses to change at all. It's not a sign that they're any worse because they have more genetic changes. What matters is how the virus behaves clinically and that's what's got politicians and also policymakers a bit more spooked because although it doesn't appear to map onto a more severe illness if you catch it, what it does appear to map onto are areas of the country where we're seeing the fastest rates of spread and that suggests although we don't know for sure because you can't say one thing causes the other you can say there is an association between these changes and a faster pattern of spread because it's occurring in parts of the country where we're seeing the the greatest rates of growth of cases so it suggests that some of these changes are enabling the virus to do that and as a result terry it is politically at least from the from the rest of the royal's perspective turning the united kingdom into the sort of the, the new wuhan wet market 
Well, yes. I mean, I think this is another case of unintended consequences of, of what's been going on in Britain and perhaps an inability to foresee the next stages. So when we had uh, Boris Johnson bring in new rules which have placed most of London and South East England under much, much tighter restrictions as a result of this new uh, variant of the virus, I think what they didn't expect and think ahead to was the reaction of other governments in Europe and elsewhere who are understandably going to say, well, whoa, hang on, we do not want this being transmitted to our countries. We're already dealing uh, with huge increases in numbers of cases. And so you know, you then had a scenario where countries were saying, well, we're not going to allow travel uh, from the UK. And that's caused great problems, you know, for not only for people who are trying to visit families elsewhere in Europe, but also, as we've heard, for, you know, for food supplies and for lorry drivers who are trying to possibly get out of the UK with an empty lorry, pick up a consignment of food or something else somewhere else in Europe, and then and bring it back and of course they as well want to want to get home uh, for Christmas and so it just shows how all of these things are bound together and if you don't think all the parts of the situation through you end up with uh, another crisis piling on. It's Terry Stiasny and Chris Smith there talking to Emma Nelson earlier today on the briefing. Um, Augustine it's becoming difficult to tell I think what is COVID-19 related chaos and what is project fear made manifest. I suppose that the common denominator between the two is 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 this kind of confluence of uh, of, of sort of populist uh, populism and demagoguery and sort of incompetence and bad messaging. Where you know Boris Johnson um, is charitably described uh, in a lot of places as an optimist. Um, I think he's more cynical than than just being an optimist. I don't think that he believes. Uh, his lies. I mean, we've all kind of forgotten about the moonshot track and trace program that was meant to see, you know, millions of people tested for COVID every day. Uh, Now it's impossible to get a COVID test on the NHS unless you've got symptoms and you've been referred for one. So obviously we're a far cry from that. And I I feel like we're always going to be. Um, In Europe, uh, there's a sense of schadenfreude, certainly. Uh, Papers are calling the UK uh, I nearly call it Paradise Island. That would be nice. Plague Island. Um, uh, kind of the opposite of Paradise Island, unless you're a sort of crazy masochist. Um, and we, I say we loosely, but and the UK is kind of increasingly a pariah state. I mean, I guess what what's happened, you know, in her appearance earlier, uh, Terry went on to describe the kind of... Um, well, a sort of holistic catastrophe where uh, this is this is the consequence of lots of bad things happening, and she she sort of mentioned it there. You know how how all of these things are bound together, um, as she put it. And I guess you know it is going to be difficult to separate COVID nineteen from Project Fear because actually the two things are going to be bound together. They're going to be contiguous in terms of the time frame that they're taking place over. Uh, one thing is going to blur into the other. And they're also um, contiguous in outcome. You know, they look the same. So I, I, I don't know whether that, that kind of delineation between the two is going to be that useful. I think we might start seeing people kind of referring to both of them sort of simultaneously because they are increasingly part of the same problem. I mean, you don't need to be too bright or too cynical, indeed, to see where this is going to go, though. I mean, a couple of weeks hence... Uh, any Brexit-related calamity, catastrophe, disruption, whatever, is going to be blamed by the government on COVID-19 because 
Brexit can only ever be faultless because it is this bizarre utopian ideological project. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Um, what I'm wondering is whether the British public has much more of an appetite for that quote-unquote optimism of Boris Johnson and his, his, uh, his cabinets. You know, I, I, I think like after Christmas was cancelled at the 11th hour, you know, that's the kind of great betrayal here. I feel like that might be a bit of a Barnard Castle moment in terms of the relationship to the public and politicians, the relationship between the public and politicians, sorry, where, you know, we've been told one thing and everyone's kind of on board with it and then suddenly another thing happens. And while the bad outcome maybe was unavoidable. The way it happened wasn't, you know, we could have been told a week earlier. This sort of thing has been getting clearer and clearer since November. There are lots of reasons that Boris Johnson or whomever could have could have said, look, guys, this is what's likely to happen over Christmas. So so what I wonder and what I'm kind of hoping for is that uh, perhaps the consequence of this will be that the public can no longer have the wall pulled over its eyes or that the number of people who are willing to kind of nourish themselves on the Haribo of Boris Johnson's false promises um, instead of eating the, 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 the iron-rich but slightly chewy leafy greens of practical misery are going are gonna to start seeing the, the benefits of eating their greens because, you know, at some point, uh, surely at some point people have to recognize the situation for what it is and stop allowing themselves to buy into this kind of made-up narrative. Well, you would think. I mean, it, it is good news, though, for at least one uh, British citizen, which is Dan Hannan, the intellectual architect of this whole thing, Brexit, that is, not COVID-19, uh, who finds himself ennobled um, to, as of today, which is, is quite the journey for somebody who led a populist insurrection uh, in favour of democratic accountability. He's going to be an unelected life peer. Good for Dan. Uh, I hope he enjoys every every day of it. Look, you know, I have one further thought on this, um, Andrew, which is what I found really instructive about the whole uh, of the coronavirus pandemic is that uh, having been very fortunate in that I was born in the UK, I've been brought up here, um, you know, I, I was brought up through good times, I think, that you enjoyed as well, that many of our listeners in the UK will have enjoyed, um, that were good enough to make everything that's happened since 2016 look really catastrophic. Um, I, I think that this is instructive in, in, a, in a lesson that actually, do you know what, the worst can happen sometimes, and it does, and it will. Um, I think there's a general complacency, which I certainly consider myself guilty of. You know, I remember in sort of 2018, um, around the midpoint of the gap between the EU referendum and, well, today, <clears throat> when there was a discussion about, you know, what happens, will medicines not be able to get to the UK? Will people not be able to get their insulin? And I think I, like probably quite a lot of people, you know, obviously I was like, oh, this is terrible, as someone who, who, who kind of considers themselves a Remainer. But at the back of my mind, I thought, nah, that'll never happen. There's no chance of that happening. Obviously, they're going to get the medicine to England. <laughs> There's not going to be a risk of that, not, not, or to the United Kingdom, I should say. that. And, and, I, and I think what we're seeing now, you know, with 1,500 lorries backed up in, uh, in Kent, um, okay, so at the moment, the shortage is only going to be of brassicas. Like, maybe that's not the end of the world. Some people don't even like uh, broccoli and cauliflower anyway. But I don't think that it's hard from here to envision 
uh, a far, far more serious um, shortage of, of things that we really need. And I suppose, you know, if we can maybe be a bit optimistic about it, perhaps, perhaps this sort of, uh, well, I can't say what I think it is on air, but this, this sort of mishap might, might be a, a wake-up call, might be something that says, hey, look, actually, uh, you know, obviously we in the UK are far removed from the privations of a war zone or from starvation. Uh, our basic needs are met and more. Our hierarchy of needs is fully accounted for, but there but for the grace of God go we, right? And actually, you know, you're never more than, what is it, five days or whatever of the supply lines breaking down from kind of anarchy. And, and we're not quite there yet, but um, it's salutary. How about that? Uh, I, I think that's a good word for it. Um, we will move on now a little bit. Not that far, though, because as if trade between the UK and Europe wasn't disrupted sufficiently by this new COVID-19 mutation, as we've just been discussing, Brexit remains unresolved as well. So the European Union and the UK will enter a new and uncertain phase in their relationship next year. And while there have been tremendous disagreements over the future of those economic ties, the questions of foreign policy are a rather a different matter. Monocle spoke earlier with Mark Leonard, co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, who has backed the creation of a European Security Council that could one day even include the United Kingdom. If you look at the sort of classical indicators of power, Europeans perform very well. Europeans spend more on defense than anyone in the world apart from the United States of America collectively. They have the biggest single market in the world. They are responsible for over half of all global development spending. They have 55,000 diplomats compared to 600 in India. But typically, they tend to be much less powerful than you would have thought if you looked at the sort of collective might of these quantitative indicators and one of the reasons for that is that whereas other powers like china and america and russia are able to use all of the different resources that they have to back up a strategic view of the world european power is very fragmented it's both fragmented between the different member states in the european union all 27 look at the world through the prism of their national interests and many of them are quite small countries and therefore they tend to accept the world as it is and work out how to adapt to it because individually they don't have the power to change it and it's also fragmented because Europeans have traditionally at least for the last few decades hoped that we were going to be entering a world where globalization was win-win phenomenon and where the role of states was basically to defend consumers but power was increasingly giving way to law in different ways and therefore they haven't really been willing to use a lot of the different resources they had behind a collective policy which is very different from China and America for example. Those are sort of chronic conditions of this sort of fragmentation of power and an ideology of, of trying to escape from great power politics rather than thinking about how you can defend yourselves in a more dangerous world. And then on top of that, over the last couple of years, we've also had Brexit, where you have one of the, the most geopolitically active 
and most ambitious European countries leaving the, the European Union. And that's happened at the same time that the United States, the sort of traditional security provider for Europeans, has indicated a growing frustration at the absence of European efforts to take responsibility for their own security. So all of these things have come together and what they create, I think, in many different European capitals is the sense that we're entering a more and more hostile world where a lot of the ways that we thought that we could defend ourselves, whether it was through you know, multilateral institutions and global governance or through the American security guarantee, are eroding. And where increasingly globalization itself is being instrumentalized and weaponized as different countries launch trade wars against each other, use energy and the internet and data flows as tools of geopolitical influence. And Europeans have not really caught up with how to respond to that. What's being discussed at the moment is the idea of a European Security Council. There are lots of different ways it could work. You know, one way would be to model it on the United Nations, where you'd have permanent members, which are kind of bigger and more powerful countries, and then other people rotating on and off it. But, you know, there are other models. You could have all member states on it. You could have just a pure rotation system. You could just use the European Council and then invite the UK to come along for meetings every now and again. I mean, you know, those are sort of second order questions. I think that the sort of first order point is that Europeans need to take more responsibility for themselves in the world. And in order to do that, they need to start building a strategic culture. And that's not going to happen without getting people at the very highest levels of government coming together and working out how they see the world and aligning behind a series of different goals. And then being willing to use the the very impressive resources that Europeans have from, you know, regulations, carbon taxes, digital taxes, defense spending, diplomatic spending, representation in global institutions in order to pursue that agenda. And I think that's what the idea of the European Security Council was to upgrade the uh, discussion of strategic issues amongst Europeans, and then to try and marshal the impressive resources which Europeans have behind a common approach. But you need to get that common approach developed first, and that's not something which exists at the moment. Europe has also proved much more resilient in dealing with Russia than anyone expected after the annexation of Crimea. Europeans introduced a series of quite impressively tough sanctions regimes and that came after a revolution in how Europeans organized their energy policies in order to defend themselves from the danger of being blackmailed by Russian energy cutoffs. And Turkey is the other sort of big power that we've been dealing with on our neighborhood and Europeans managed to reinvent that relationship to do a deal with Turkey at the height of the migration crisis and then to resist various attempts by Erdogan to unpick that and to to try and weaponize refugees against Europeans. And that was before COVID. And I think COVID has created an even greater sense amongst European citizens that they're vulnerable, that we're in a dangerous world, and that Europe can be the first line of defense against that dangerous world. And I think that at the moment, there's very little appetite to find ways of institutionalizing Britain's relationship with Europe. And I think that 
we're going to see a period of conscious uncoupling before there are any attempts to reinstitutionalize relationships between different countries. And I think that the UK will find that on many areas, whether it's to do with Iran or Russia's role or how to deal with China, that its interests are quite closely aligned with those of European countries. And that Britain will have much more ability to defend those interests if it's closely aligned with other Europeans. Equally, from the EU perspective, it's quite obvious that if you introduce sanctions against Russia, they will be much more effective if they also include the City of London and BP. If you want to work out ways of intervening in countries in the European neighbourhood, having the UK as part of any coalition will make it stronger and more effective. So in the medium to longer term, I think it both is very much in both sides' interests. And I think there are reasons to be optimistic. But certainly at the moment, things are going in the opposite direction. And I, I can't see this happening in the very near future at all. Mark Leonard there, co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, talking to Monocle24 earlier. Finally today, let's turn to Finland, where a minor scandal has erupted over ski jumpers. Well, I'll let Monocle's man in Helsinki, Petri Burtsov, explain further. This particular event happened in, in a sport called the Nordic Combined, which is a combination of ski jumping and cross-country skiing, but it also is taking place in the ski jumping. So what happens is the ski jumpers have a have a uniform that is uh, made to measure, and uh, they measure before the start of the each season. They, they basically measure your um, the length of your legs and so on, you know, so that you get the correct uniform and you don't cheat. So apparently in the measurement process, um, some ski jumpers have been cheating by uh, stuffing some paper napkins and even sponges into their pants so that they can they, they will be then allowed to uh, use bigger uniforms and these bigger uniforms uh, in turn you know they provide more lift when when you fly down the hill uh, kind of reminiscent of if you've seen the Red Bull man flying around it looks like he's got wings so he can fly better that was Monocle's Petri Burtsov explaining a scandal which is besetting uh, Finnish ski jumping. Um, Augustine, I tend towards the view, and by when I say I tend towards the view, I mean I am frantically making this up as I go, um, that if you're going to do something like ski jump anyway, I don't really care how you aid or abet yourself on your way down. I mean, it's all fairly immaterial, isn't it? I completely agree. Look, if, if, you're, if you're bonkers enough to throw yourself down a 100 metres long ramp, then I think maybe padding your, your bottom with some tissue paper, if nothing else, to cushion the landing doesn't, doesn't seem like the sort of thing that they shouldn't be allowed to do. Um, have you had any run-ins with, uh, with winter sports, Andrew? I am extremely clumsy and maladroit and fear physical pain. But um, some years ago, in the interests of uh, fulfilling a travel assignment, I did find myself actually riding the Cresta Run at San Moritz, which is the, the skeleton track where you ride face first on a tea tray, basically down a sheet of solid ice. Uh, I did it twice. The first few seconds of the first time I went, I think it's the most frightened I have ever been in my life because 
I mean, it's it's objectively pretty quick. You're still, you know, you're racking up a speed of around 70, 80 kilometres an hour, even if you're trying to go as slowly as possible. And with your chin about two inches off the ice, that really does feel like you're travelling. And it's just, it's just not a, it's not a state of being to which I'd previously been accustomed. It was really, really weird. And of course, I, I survived the first attempt and thought, well, hey, I can do this. This is easy. I've totally got it licked. Second time I went down, went this close uh, to going off the run at the the corner they call shuttlecock um and i was almost disappointed afterwards not to have crashed out at shuttlecock because i discovered um that there's actually a club for people who go over at shuttlecock you get a tie uh, and i think there's an invitation to an annual event um so if you manage to go over the shuttlecock curve and survive the experience and it is no joke you can do yourself um serious damage um yeah you, you're kind of set up for at least one decent social occasion a season yeah, that's pretty good. Um, would you do you think put your sort of thumb on the scales, as it were, next time to ensure that you did go over the edge? They do pad the corner with with um, with straw and soft snow and so forth, but you'd still be going over at a reasonably decent clip and I think it could still hurt and they were they were very very keen uh, to impress upon us the day I went that the day before somebody had been stretched away at Shuttlecog and was currently in hospital having had their spleen removed um, I don't I don't know whether that story was true or not but I, I think it had a, a fairly sobering effect on we class of neophytes yeah I, I think that like winter sports in general there's 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 a lot more um one doesn't think about it necessarily. Well, maybe other people do. I'm just thinking about it now, but I feel like it was Will Self who said that if there were any justice in the world, airports would be kind of towering ziggurats made of gold and that all aeroplanes would be totally transparent so you could actually see what it was you were doing when you were on one. Um, it's just one of those kind of assimilated risks flying, isn't it? And I guess in the same way, skiing of any sort, you don't have to be ski jumping for it to be incredibly dangerous, just sliding down a hill. I am... Um, you know, when I was 16, went on a on a kind of alternative ski trip organised not by my school, but rather by uh, a particularly enterprising one of my friends. And within the first 10 minutes, uh, someone suffered an injury so severe that they couldn't walk for six months and had to have extensive reconstructive surgery on a knee. Uh, another girl collapsed a lung and someone else broke their neck in the space of a week. <laughs> It's just not that safe. You well, I, I think on that note, uh, we, we should say thanks especially to all our listeners who are spending this Christmas trying to have some sort of ski season. Um, and for those of our listeners who are regular participants in winter sports who find themselves unable to participate for the obvious reasons this season, I mean, maybe count your blessings. You don't know what injuries you might be sparing yourself. Indeed. And that does about wrap it up for today. Many thanks to my guest, the esteemed Augustin Machelari, it says here. I rather suspect he wrote this outro himself. And huge thanks also to our studio manager, Louis Allen. Uh, we will be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 2100 London time. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for being with us. Music.